So five extra minutes. Where do you all want to go with this? We can jump back to Leviticus and really get some stuff going. <laughs> so moving on. Um, when I first sent the scripture reading to Jeff for this week, I wish I had told him something different because in order to fully understand what Jesus is telling his disciples at this point in chapter 18, we have to jump back. And that's a disservice to you, so I'm not going to read the entire 18th chapter of Matthew's Gospel to you. But with five extra minutes, I could, and you wouldn't notice. But let me tell you a few things that you need to know to catch you up to where we're at now. At first glance, when we read that Jesus told, or his disciples asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The first person that comes to your mind might be Pastor Jeff, but that is not the greatness with which Jesus is telling his disciples about. He's telling us that true greatness begins with the humility. Humility that only a child can have. And that when someone, that when we welcome someone with the humility of a child, that we are welcoming Jesus himself. Craig Bloomberg, who's one of my favorite commentators in the Bible, describes this state of humility as an objective state and not a subjective, saying that children de who depend almost entirely on adults, they depend on adults for their protection and provision, and that would-be disciples must share their condition of utter dependence on God. Next, after building on the humility of a child, Jesus warns us that it would be better for those who attempt to act as stumbling blocks to someone. Stumbling blocks to those humble children to tie a millstone around their neck and drown in the sea. That's right. Verse 6, chapter 18. Jesus is telling us that those who seek to stumble anyone coming to him with the humility of a child should tie a heavy stone around their neck and find a deep puddle of water to jump into. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying that one act of impeding a would-be disciple would lead to this fate, but rather he's speaking of a lifelong journey that's characterized by causing others to sin. And that is in in incompatible with true discipleship. And then finally, after Jesus warns us with this good fellow's tight fate, he tells his disciples that God will rejoice when a lost sheep returns. That is to say, a lost follower or someone who has strayed away from God returns. So now you're all caught up. We can all acknowledge that church drama, usually caused by two people in a game, of outdoing one another's sins against each other is some of the worst drama out there. I have been in conversations at three different churches now with people about why they have chosen to leave either the church that we were at then or coming to a new church. And other than the obvious things of moving for a job or wanting to be in a church with such an awesome worship pastor, <laughs> the top reason 
that someone leaves the faith community, distancing themselves from the body of Christ, fracturing the body of Christ, is unresolved drama stemming from sin. Sadder, it is this unresolved drama that it typically begins as something as little as you sat in my pew and things were never resolved. And at that moment, with a failure to respond to the offense with a reasonable amount of time, the body of Christ splits. And yet, in a time when the church is fracturing due to other unresolved sins, we are failing to listen to Jesus' instructions for how to identify and then just move past our own individual sin. The only way to prevent the festering of sin from occurring is to confront it when it is present. Confronting it immediately, not waiting a week or two weeks or three. The prevention of conflict, confronting other members of the body of Christ when sin is present, is an obligation that each one of us has as members of Christ's body, as members of Mount Olivet Church. Because when someone sins against us as an individual, they are sinning against the entirety of Christ's body. Jesus, when he is speaking these words, he's speaking with the echoes of Leviticus 19 in his ears. I told you I'd get Leviticus in here this morning. <laughs> you, shall not, you shall not hate in your heart anyone of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. Stanley Hauerwas suggests that this three-part confrontation of sin that Jesus outlined was not merely a recommendation. Hauerwas said that Jesus' style of confronting sin is an indication of the kind of community Jesus was calling into existence. Because we love God, and we love one another, and it is God who binds us all together, we must refuse to risk the loss of one single person to sin. This is why Jesus tells us that our Father in heaven rejoices when anyone who is lost to sin or a lost sheep returns. Yet Jesus tells us there will be a time when it may become necessary to let a person go, to be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now those are some Bible terms, and today most of us would probably agree that tax collectors aren't on our top friends list. But Gentiles were those who were outside of the Jewish community. It is a broad term for anyone who is not Jewish. In Palestine at this time, there was a large number of Greeks and Romans and Persians living there. And because they did not follow Jewish purity laws, and the men in these groups were not circumcised, they were considered outsiders to the Jewish community. Tax collectors, though, are another story. Tax collectors were not welcome in many Jewish communities because of their colluding with the occupying Roman Empire. In many cases, 
colluding Jewish tax collectors collected more than was required by the Roman Empire, lining their pockets at the expense of their Jewish sisters and brothers. The process, the work that Jesus outlines in this invitation to participate in holy reconciliation. This is not us confronting sin for the sake of creating church drama, but instead this is how we are to live in peace with one another. The purpose of Jesus' three steps is not to eliminate sin within a community, although that would have been a nice deal for us, but rather it's to deal with sin before it reaches telenovela proportions. The former Archbishop of Canterbury and New Testament scholar N.T. Wright argues that for us gathered here this morning, that means everybody in this room right now, every one of us falls into one of two categories. We either love soap operas or we hate them. <laughs> And I will confess to you this morning that while I have never watched the entirety of a soap opera, I can tell you without a doubt, without a doubt in my being, that I fall into the latter of the two categories. Wright argues that soap operas do, though, offer us as a holy body value. And even if only of us, half of us, only half of us enjoy them. He suggests, and again, I'm taking him at his word for this, that soap operas offer us models of how to engage in conflict and, dis and disagreement with clarity and honesty. As we engage in the work of confronting sin, the work of holy reconciliation, Christ himself is present with us. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Most of us in the room can recite that one from memory. When we confront someone's sin, we are not doing it so that we can say, Aha, I gotcha. Or I'm trying to prove something. Rather, we are confronting sin so that we can strengthen the body of Christ. This strengthening of Christ's body is not something that we can do alone. If that were the case... Jesus would not have told us how to do it. He would not have died on the cross, reconciling us with God. There is a problem, though, that may occur when many of us are engaged in the work of holy reconciliation. Because we often fail to realize that in some cases, this isn't for all of you, but in some cases, there will be times when we think that we are the one who has been offended when in fact we are the offender. In order for us to realize this, we need, we desperately need the childlike humility Jesus speaks of in the passages prior to our reading this morning. Whoever becomes humble like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. This first begins at the individual level. How have I sinned against another, another on the other side of this room, someone upstairs, or someone in my neighborhood? The sin may not be immediately apparent, or it may not have even been intentional, which is why Jesus is telling us that humility is a requirement. 
But what about communities? Can an entire community, an entire group of people, sin against another community? We've seen the painful truth to this question. We saw it on August 12th in Charlottesville, Virginia. The church is confronting the sin of bigotry and racism and must continue to do so. We must continue this work beyond the two-week news cycle. The church has played a role in the fueling of sin and bigotry and racism, and we must not determine what our role is. We need to be in the process of holy reconciliation before we make that determination. And we are witnessing it again as we, as a nation, tell an entire group of people. Many of them have never lived anywhere else, and now we are telling them that they must go to another place that they don't know, all because of identity politics, and rather than identifying with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a time when the church must put politics aside and confront the sin of race-based fear, leveraging the power of our global enterprise. We know these are sins, and we call them as such. But what if it's not that obvious? What if it's not slapping us in the face? What if it is not on our social media feeds constantly, or not when we turn on the radios or the TVs? This is when communities, whether the sin occurred last week or 50 years ago, need to be willing to humbly confront one another with a willingness to repent, but also to seek forgiveness. Churches across the nation are beginning to examine their own roles within communities where segregation has been the history. And in that process are engaged in holy reconciliation. We see this in entire communities and nations. We saw this happen in 1994 after the genocide in Rwanda, when the realization that doing nothing was more wrong than losing political capital. There are times when, for a community, for whatever reason, willing or unwilling, will do something to cause harm to individuals and groups. We will sin against our sisters and brothers. There is no doubt in my mind that that will never end. But when they come to us to report the offense, how will we respond? Every week, when we gather around the table, we ask for the forgiveness of our own sins. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who as we forgive our debtors. Addressing our own sin before confronting the sin of others. Jesus taught us to look at ourselves first, humbly seeking forgiveness and repenting. Jesus is telling us from the beginning, we know that reconciliation is a two-way street. And we can find hope in Jesus' own ministry as he ministered to the Gentiles and the tax collectors. There's a story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, if you want to pull out your Bible and verify what I'm about to tell you. There's this guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and when he heard that Jesus was coming, he climbed a tree so that he could get a view of the healing work that Jesus was doing. And as 
Jesus makes his way. He sees that he is in the tree, and he calls him down from the tree. And when I hear this story, I often put myself in Zacchaeus' shoes. And when Jesus calls you down from a tree, you're not gracefully coming down from that tree. You are going as quickly as you can, heading probably more than a few branches on the way down. And Jesus invites himself over to dinner with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. And to be associated with a tax collector is the same to be associated with an unclean person, a sinner. And if you want to know more about that, go back to Leviticus and check it out. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus was criticized by the Pharisees for his willingness to eat with the unclean. But when Zacchaeus encountered the living Christ, he was compelled to seek reconciliation and forgiveness. Coming down from his perch in the tree as quickly as he could, Zacchaeus shows his willingness not only to repent, but his willingness to make things right. The only way to make things right is with the humility that Jesus speaks of. We are not lost to our own sin. Zacchaeus shows us that there is hope for all of us. Communities confronting their own role in sinful behavior, going through the process of holy reconciliation, gives us hope. When we are the offender or the offended, confronting the sin of another, Jesus is present in that moment. Even if more confrontation is required, or if we end up like Zacchaeus, being called down from a tree and back into the life of the community, Christ is willing to meet us. The body of Christ is calling us down from our tree. Amen.